0: well good afternoon everyone thank you all so much for joining us especially for making time for this when there is so much that is going on out in the world um, that we cannot ignore even if we wanted to Um, but in many ways um, the work that we all have going on um, in terms of representing low-income individuals, including veterans, continues and needs to continue um, because it's important to recognize that now more than ever access to healthcare and other supportive benefits, which is what successfully achieving a discharge upgrade can do um, is incredibly important um, to people's uh, well being. So I really appreciate you are taking the time. I want to also extend a big thank you to the BBA for not only agreeing to host this program um, for its sixth annual pro bono training, um, but also deftly shifted us to a webinar um, when uh, it became obvious that we were not going to be able to gather in person as we usually do. So a big thank you to the BBA who's been such a great support over the years. Um, And then a special thank you to uh, Dr. Nathan Hartvickson and Dr. Sandy Dixon um, for making time and joining us today when obviously they have very um, pressing things going on in their own work in terms of supporting their patients' mental health. Um, uh, They can tell you more, but as um, you may notice, Dr. Hartvickson is actually joining us from the Hope Hospital uh, in Boston um, on the front lines of the pandemic, um, and thus we'll be wearing a mask for the uh, duration of the program, but we have tested and his audio quality is still quite good. Um, as I mentioned, this is our um, sixth annual training. We know many of you have joined us for prior trainings or have taken on, um, watched some of our prior programs and are versed in the basics of discharge upgrade law. Many of you have, in fact, been representing veterans for a couple of years now um, and submitted discharge upgrade petitions before and so we're really glad to have so many of you back. We, um, of course, are always looking for new members to join and so if there are people here who are joining us who have not been part of our prior programs, know that we will assume and I'll, I'll cover briefly some basics of discharge upgrade law, um, but that we assume some familiarity with this area of law and um, that you can catch up on some of the basics through our prior trainings that the BBA continues to make available online. Um, so feel free to reach out to the BBA or to me if you'd like to access those other programs. Um, still, I think that what, whatever your level of knowledge is about discharge law, the information that um, Dr. Harkvickson and Dr. Dixon can provide today will be very easy to understand and um, invaluable to representing your clients. So let me transition to our PowerPoint. Um, one moment. So what we'll do today is I'm going to give a very brief introduction about discharge upgrade law and um, some updates on what has happened in the area of discharge upgrade law in the past uh, year since we last met. Um, I will then turn it over to Dr. Nathan Hartvickson who um, will talk about understanding mental health disorders and how they are treated, both in the military and afterwards. Um, Dr. Hartvickson had spent 14 years on active duty as an army psychiatrist. He then um, got board certified in forensic psychiatry and is now the co-director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Home Base Programs Intensive Clinical Program. Um, So he is providing Um, treatment um, for PTSD and other mental health conditions for veterans every day. Dr. Dixon um, will then present about not only some best practices for uh, we lawyers to know in terms of how to work with veterans who have mental health conditions, but also talk about how we can most effectively work with mental health professionals, um, both experts and um, otherwise, when we need to um, create evidence to support a discharge upgrade petition. Dr. Dixon is a clinical psychologist in private practice. She specializes in treating veterans and others with trauma disorders. Um, And many of you may already know her because she has served as an expert in many pro bono cases um, over the years um, that this pro bono panel has existed, um, for which we're very grateful. We will, as Daniel said at the beginning, leave some time for questions at the end. Feel free to submit questions um, as things go along and we will answer them when we can. If we're not able to answer questions during the program, we'll do our best to try to follow up with you afterwards um, to answer those questions. So um, without further ado, let me share that there is um, one update that I had emailed out to um, our pro bono panel members that At long last, um, the Department of Defense had issued new application forms to um, submit a discharge upgrade application. So there's both a new DD 149 and a new DD 293. Those are available online, but sometimes a little bit hard to find the correct copy. So when you're next submitting your discharge upgrade petition, make sure you have the form that is dated December 2019. Also, we've had some interesting um, litigation and um, policy developments over the past year. There have been two lawsuits brought by the National Veterans Legal Services Program directly against the records correction boards, um, challenging two unlawful actions by those boards. First um, is NVLSP versus the Department of Defense that challenged that the Boards had removed all of the decisions from the reading rooms. Um, so the past decisions of the boards that were publicly available online um, in violation of statute. The, through the course of that litigation, although the case was dismissed and is now on appeal, the DOD did take action as a result of the suit to start putting decisions back on, online so that they are accessible. That means that when you're searching for district decisions now, you will find some again on the reading rooms, although not all of the decisions, um, and they should be um, doing a rolling production over the next um, few months until all the decisions are back up. There's also a separate case that is ongoing, um, Calhoun versus McCarthy, which challenged the board's failure to comply with the eight-month deadline to um, decide all cases. Um, this has moved into um, motion, there's a motion to dismiss, as well as a pending motion for class certification. So certainly I will be sure to update our pro bono panel members once we get more information about what's going on with these cases. Likewise, um, last year actually I had mentioned that there were two certified class actions focused on the Army Discharge Review Board and the Naval Discharge Review Board. Those cases are ongoing um, and currently actually in mediation and settlement talks. Um, if you're looking for the biggest updates, um, you can visit the websites that are on these slides. Um, and hopefully I can also share updates when we hear about what happens with these cases, but they are challenging the board's failure to fully implement the Hail memorandums guidance about how to appropriately consider, how to appropriately apply liberal consideration in cases where a veteran with PTSD, TBI, or a different mental health condition um, says that that condition caused or contributed to their less than honorable discharge. Um, from our own clinic, we also issued a report um, in early March about veterans with bad paper and uh, difficulties that they have when they try to access health care at the Department of Veterans Affairs. We reported on a national and systemic practice that often when veterans with bed paper do try to seek health care at um, VA facilities, they're often just turned away at the door without provide, being provided the right to apply or to receive an actual decision, um, even though in fact many of them may be eligible. I would encourage you all to read the report, including because it has a really um, detailed overview of the eligibility criteria for veterans with bad paper to access VA services, um, including the many ins and outs and exceptions in the law. So if you have a client who is not accessing VA services um, or and might be able, might be interested in using them, it might be a good resource to check whether um, there are ways to get um, them eligibility so that they can get the support that they deserve. So now to turn to our quick update about um, discharge upgrade law and what it is that brings us here to focus specifically on veterans who have mental health issues and putting together a discharge upgrade petition that focuses on mental health. As you all know, um, the boards consider um, different standards um, for granting an upgrade. One is focused on The legal errors that could have happened in the separation process, that is called either error or impropriety. And then um, there's also sort of fairness arguments that you can make in support of a discharge upgrade called inequity or injustice. The discharge review board regulations then specifically talk about how a veteran who is affected by family or personal problems or who had diminished capabilities um, can submit a petition for sort of an equitable upgrade. So that also encompasses mental health. And then of course, our most detailed guidance from the boards about how the board should be looking at mental health conditions and whether they can mitigate a discharge um, are the CURTA and Hegel memorandum. Both of those um, talk about that the board should provide liberal consideration of applications that are based on in-service mental health conditions. So conditions that were either incurred in service or aggravated by service, um, and that contributed to the conduct that led to the veteran's discharge. So what we know is there has to be something, some mental health condition that either began in service or got worse in service. It can be any mental health condition, um, PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, and then that there has to be some sort of nexus to the conduct that led to their discharge. So this raises the questions for us as lawyers. Um, Actually, let me stop. One thing we know um, about the boards is that overall, the success rates are relatively low. These are some boards um, statistics from 2018. Um, And as you can see, the majority of applications are denied by the boards orange bars at the top, um, and these statistics are actually slightly better than they had been in past years. However, um, the success rates for cases that are based on mental health are are actually slightly higher, um, especially at the Army boards. Um, it does increase the likelihood of success if you're able to um, put forth a strong um, argument that there was a mental health condition in service that led to the discharge. So now that brings up questions for us as lawyers, which is that we have a particular expertise and it's important, but in order to effectively advocate for veterans with mental health conditions, we need to know what is a mental health disorder, what treatment um, and resources might the veteran have had access to in the military, and how do we evaluate those records to see whether what actually happened in service. We need to be able to evaluate what is supposed to happen regarding mental health considerations in the separation process. um, So we can evaluate those military records and see whether there was either some unfairness or some um, error in the discharge. And we also of course, really need to be able to work well with our clients who may still be experiencing mental health conditions. What do we need to do as lawyers to take those into consideration while we are working with them? How do we develop then compelling evidence of a mental health condition, including do we need to engage a mental health expert on the question of whether the veteran had a condition in service and whether that has any um, causal link to the discharge. And with that, I will turn it over um, to Dr. Hartrickson.
1: Hey, thank you very much. uh, The world is a different place uh, from just a few months ago when I accepted the uh, invitation. I had a great suit uh, picked out I was going to wear. I was so excited. uh, But in the meantime, I've uh, had the chance to uh, help out here at uh, Boston Hope. It's a uh, post-acute care facility for uh, COVID-positive patients. And uh, I am helping out with the psychiatry consult liaison service, and we advise on uh, Psychiatry medications, but the dress code is a little different here. So I picked out my favorite scrubs, uh, my my fanciest set to wear out here on the perimeter. We have to wear uh, a mask at all time. But uh, when I head back down to the uh, patient care floor we will be geared up in our full uh, personal protective equipment uh, with gloves and a face shield and it was uh, much harder to talk when we did our sound test uh, Wednesday. So I relocated up here for today's talk and it's a An honor to uh, be able to uh, speak with you today. I'm going to share my screen. And we'll jump right in. Oh, now here's an interesting consequence of being upstairs in a giant room by myself. I'm going to flap my arms a little bit, but you won't need to look at me anyway. The lights just went out because I was standing still so long. (laughs) Here we go. Now it's even more surreal as I... uh... I'm gonna try to flap my arms a little, see if we can get the lights back on. But without further ado, I'm gonna to begin to review my, uh, my uh, materials here with you. I'm uh, board certified in general and forensic psychiatry. I, uh, I'm a consultant to the MGH Law and Psychiatry Service. Uh, and because I uh, help out with the instruction of the, of the forensic psychiatry fellow, I'm also uh, entertained to be uh, able to indicate my status as an instructor in psychiatry, comma, part-time, uh, because I get to help out with uh, the Forensics Fellowship now. It's been a lot of fun. But uh, this is a, a great topic. I'm gonna power through my uh, my disclosures here, which I have none of. There we go. No conflicts of interest, and these, of course, are my own views. Uh, These are the categories we're going to be talking about uh, today. And if I may, for just a moment.
0: about that hopefully we can uh, hopefully
1: we can edit that out of the out of the uh, final video material <laughs> so we 'll keep moving along here we 're going to talk about uh, discharges. I was an army psychiatrist uh, for uh, fourteen years uh, i don 't count the time that I was training to be a psychiatrist, but I was in uniform the whole time, so it was a long stretch uh, uh, medical school uh, we were uh, in uniform the whole time, and then we got upgraded to captains uh, for our residency. That was another four years. But I was an Army psychiatrist uh, after uh, all that training uh, for 14 years uh, afterwards. And uh, so my disclaimer is that these are all Army related experiences. Department of Defense, of course, uh, oversees all the branches of the uh, armed services, and so there's a DOD instruction 6130.03 that. Uh, that uh, dictates all the regulations for different uh, discharges for the service, but there obviously may be some variations in the the terminology, Uh, the general principles still apply. So the first thing I was gonna do was just review some of the general categories, of ways that you can get out of the military. Uh, And the first and most common is the uh, fulfillment of your active duty service obligation. Army loves uh, acronyms and uh, a th- good three, uh, a three-letter 3 acronym is, uh, is uh, preferred even when it's only a two-word phrase like temporary duty is still a TDY, but uh, the four-letter acronym is the best of all, and this one is a serious one, the active duty service obligation. When you've finished your, uh, your contract, uh, you can be done with the military, and uh, so most people have an, an expiration of term of service, so their ETS date is something that a lot of uh, service members will have kept track of. Uh, For uh, officers like myself, I was on an indefinite status though, and so I had to resign my commission in order to um, come to MGH for the Forensic Psychiatry Fellowship. And so my category was an unqualified resignation, which raises the question for me, uh, there must be uh, some sort of qualified resignations as well. Mine was an unqualified resignation. In the uh, administrative separation category, uh, there's, uh, of course, um, voluntary separations, but the involuntary separations is the topic that we're going to be uh, discussing today, the category of uh, service members. It's governed by uh, the Army Regulation 635-200. You can get your own copy if you don't have one already uh, for some um, late night reading. Uh, if you're having trouble falling asleep at uh, Army pubs, they've got every single document you could ever hope to uh, access there uh, and the categories that as a psychiatrist that uh, I was uh, interacting with most often was the chapter, uh, chapter five of this regulation which is uh, the, uh, for the convenience of the government uh, and uh, 5-13 was a very common separation for the first part of my uh, early part of my army career. Uh, personality disorders are governed under uh, uh, chapter 5-13. But uh, starting in 2012, uh, some controversy uh, developed about the utilization of this uh, chapter for service members who had uh, uh, combat uh, trauma and may well have had uh, PTSD diagnosis applied to them but were being separated from the military under this administrative separation chapter rather than medically retired. And so after 2012, the Surgeon General uh, uh, exerted, uh, Surgeon General of the Army, should clarify, exerted uh, some influence and made it much more challenging to separate soldiers. Commanders were um, frustrated with the the medical team uh, to a certain extent uh, to changing their uh, method for managing problematic soldiers. But uh, personality disorders, uh, to separate a soldier under personality disorder, chapter 5-13, required clearance by the office of the Surgeon General, uh, Army Surgeon General. And so those effectively uh, tapered right off. Uh, but the, the upsurge after 2012 was chapter 5-17, which is kind of a wastebasket category of uh, other designated physical or mental uh, conditions. And so those were the two big chapters that uh, when people were being uh, involuntarily separated for behavioral health concerns, that we would see them in my clinics as an Army psychiatrist. Uh, The next category, uh, just briefly uh, to review, uh, some soldiers uh, that do have a medical condition uh, and with our DSM-5, we'll talk about some of the specific uh, categories where soldiers might be medically retired, but they would go through an MEB process, another great acronym, the uh, Medical Evaluation Board, which is the first step of the uh, process. And uh, once the MEB is completed, uh, the packet is sent for review by the Physical uh, Evaluation Board, the PEB, and the outcomes of that uh, process could be um, outright uh, rejection. They may be found fit for duty and returned to uh, service with some temporary duty uh, uh, limitations or even a permanent uh, activity profile. Or they may be uh, medically retired uh, and they'll be eligible for treatment uh, after service and receive some variable percentage of their pay. Um, To be contrasted with uh, good old fashioned regular retirement, uh, when if you finished your full uh, 20 years, you'll be eligible for full benefits. And so we did run into some interesting situations where soldiers after 18, 19 years of service were just so impaired by their uh, PTSD symptoms, that they realized that they were no longer able to participate as fully as they they used to, or or even wanted to, uh, and a a difficult challenge, uh, some some complicated calculus that would occur as they determined whether a medical retirement uh, would be uh, even financially uh, sustainable when compared to just trying to tough it out for a few more years and be eligible for a full um, retirement. Well, so that raises, uh, uh, leads to some interesting questions uh, as to motivations for uh, looking through the chart. As we talked to a soldier who had obvious impairments, uh, they would frequently uh, complain to uh, me and my team uh, about uh, being confronted by the fact that with this kind of a classic quote, why have you never talked about these symptoms before? You've got 19 and a half years in service. We look through your medical chart there's nothing to indicate that you've ever had a problem with this and isn't that a little suspicious that uh, suddenly now you're uh, angling for benefits was the uh, was the received uh, message uh, that uh, would become very complicated uh, for uh, many soldiers. Uh, Last category is punitive separations uh, that uh, the big chicken dinner. I actually heard a soldier use that phrase uh, for a bad conduct uh, discharge, the BCD. Uh, and of course, punitive but discharges can only uh, result from a court martial, uh, the bad conduct discharge or a uh, dishonorable discharge. I've got to move my... Um, my window around on my screen so I can see my uh, slides. So we're gonna talk about after you've separated, regardless of the categorization of your separation, each uh, service member is gonna receive a DD-214. So uh, just to give you an example of what this looks like, i fished out my own copy and uh, provided selected uh, uh, items from the DD form, Department of Defense 214. You can see there in Block 23 is the discharge uh, paperwork and the uh, Army regulation that uh, governs this uh, process is uh, 600-8-24, but um, we're gonna move right along to, of all the Army documents that I've received, this is the only one that uh, proclaims how important it is. This is an important record and they make that very clear. Take care of this piece of paper because it's important. And so every service member is instructed about how important this is. It can be a surprisingly touchy uh, subject. And so I wanted to get into some of the information that's available on this DD-214 and why some service members may be uh, reluctant to uh, share this information. So uh, luckily on mine, the Block 24 there, this was an honorable uh, discharge for me, even though they were hoping I would stick around. I had uh, requested and was approved to resign my commission. It was an honorable uh, separation. The separation code in Block 26, I had to look this one up. Oh, FND, what does this mean? Is this some new exciting acronym? No, it turns out FND just means resignation. Like, wow, they really know. This is exactly the category that I applied for and was approved. Uh, So this is uh, very specific. Of course, there may be clerical errors. There's all kinds of uh, uh, horror stories about uh, individual uh, soldiers uh, having uh, discrepancies on their record, but uh, if they've left the military, they've had ample opportunity to uh, correct this document, and this is your important uh, record. So, what what could be what could be uh, concerning about this DD-214? Well, that's one of them, right? If you had a, uh, a big chicken dinner, that's uh, going to be reflected on your uh, DD-214 as a bad conduct discharge. Um, and this also in the remarks category has indications of uh, other areas uh, or deployments, uh, for example. Uh, and so this can, be a, this can be a sensitive topic for uh, individuals who either have uh, uh, participated in, in um, assignments that are not reflected on their DD-214 for whatever reason, uh, or that uh, kind of point out like my uh, very cushy uh, me- medical uh, assignment are not so uh, heroic uh, sounding. It starts out sounding great. i served in a designated imminent danger pay area. Wow, that's something. Let's keep moving across here. Where was it? Oh, service in Kuwait. That is not dangerous at all. So I was at a staging area. We had a swimming pool, a movie theater. But uh, if you didn't know any, uh, different. It uh, shows right on my list. Designated imminent danger pay area. Well, it was just designated, not actually dangerous, and most of the people that were just stopped on their way through there were going to actually dangerous places. Well, maybe how long was I there? Maybe it was a hardship. Oh, no. What? Not even five months you can see the day. 2016. So there's some very specific information there, and quite appropriately at the bottom uh, of my... Uh, Uh, list there nothing follows right that was my only utilization uh, tour and it was uh, a very non-dangerous assignment so I uh, am very careful to point out that even though I was in the military uh, I didn't have to do the types of uh, really dangerous scary things that so many of our service members had to do and it's all right there on my uh, DD-214 Uh, Next, we will review some of the conditions uh, that can result in some of these uh, discharges and what types of dispositions will uh, likely result. So there's a big long list of categories. PTSD, of course, for a post-traumatic stress disorder, we'll be talking about more uh, later. Uh, Major depressive disorder was actually less uh, common in my uh, treatment experience for people, uh, service members to be approved for medical retirements. That was often to be found fit for duty because there were plenty of adequate uh, treatments. And so often uh, uh, service members were retained on active duty despite a severe uh, depressive episode. I didn't include uh, things like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder because those are pretty much automatic disqualifiers. And so uh, we don't, uh, See too many people that stay in long with uh, with a uh, severe mental illness or a bipolar uh, disorder but the question of a mild tbi became very interesting so just as i was finishing my residency uh, the uh, the uh, awareness of this signature injury of uh, concussions uh, due to blast injuries became uh, quite prominent and it was just interesting to me that as we talk about strategies for engagement later, the cultural acceptability of this idea of a, of a blast exposure or a, a TBI, that that was a phrase that was, uh, that was much more um, palatable for many service members than the idea of PTSD. And so that was interesting to me, uh, just the cultural aspects of these two um, important diagnoses. Uh, one of the common themes that I came across uh, with uh, the reluctance to, to discuss a, a diagnosis of possible PTSD was just the ways that it got uh, utilized. There were uh, many, uh, many soldiers would uh, convey to me this concern that, well, PTSD is just a, a, you know, a, a label to hide behind. Only dirtbags hide behind a PTSD label uh, so they can get out of deployments, right? Really unfortunate. Uh, and that people would just keep their their symptoms to themselves and just suffer silently because there was a palpable stigma that we'll talk about uh, briefly later uh, and some ways that the army tried to address those uh, challenges. Also, uh, these are uh, medical conditions that could result in a um, medical retirement, that MEB process. Way over on the other end of the spectrum is the um, question of drug abuse and substance use disorders, uh, and so those are just automatically by definition that's misconduct will be chaptered out under this administrative separation. Chapter 14 is the misconduct chapter and that is an OTH characterization other than honorable. So that's bad news if uh, substance abuse was a challenge, but uh, this is just, you know, this is a military policy uh, treatment uh, from a treatment perspective. That's a condition that we would uh, work with and manage and uh, We'll talk uh, here next very briefly about the idea of uh, uh, parallel um, uh, benefits programs. And so SSA uh, handles the uh, alcohol and drug abuse in a similar uh, method to the way that the Army addresses alcohol use, but it's alcohol only. So any other illicit substances or even legal substances in the state of Massachusetts, such as marijuana, uh, could result in just an automatic... uh, administrative uh, discharge under the misconduct chapter. But alcohol treatment failure was a very interesting uh, uh, middle ground where uh, we expect that uh, relapse is part of the process for alcohol use disorders, uh, but the army would give uh, service members only so many chances. And so there was a specific administrative separation uh, route to to out process uh, service members who had been uh, identified as having an alcohol use disorder were enrolled in alcohol treatment programs, such as ASAP, it was called when I first started the Army Substance Abuse Program. And then uh, they got fancy with their name and uh, changed it all around to be the Substance Use Disorder Clinical Care uh, Programs. But uh, if you had failed in a if, and had been designated by your treatment provider as having failed an alcohol treatment program, uh, then you could be administratively separated under uh, chapter nine. And so again, this is uh, no benefits uh, but it could be characterized as a general uh, discharge. Uh, And so it was was perceived as a better option than the chapter 14 other than honorable uh, misconduct separation. And interestingly, we would run into uh, some commanders who were very intent on punishing or maintaining discipline uh, and would try to bypass our chapter nine options to just uh, administratively separate under this uh, misconduct chapter 14 where the option for an other than honorable characterization uh, applied. So that's an area to look for, just uh, uh, chapter nine versus chapter 14, if uh, an alcohol use disorder was a factor in your client's uh, separation. All right, how are we doing on time? Looks like I've got just enough time to tell my case example. My first assignment out of residency, I was so excited. Our whole family got to go to Korea and uh, I was assigned way up here uh, that you can just see on my the map that I grabbed off of uh, Google Maps so that's the demilitarized zone so there's North Korea right up there so it was a lot of fun we were in area one they, they designate uh, they divide the nation up into uh, four areas area two down here is the massive uh, metropolis of Seoul and my family got to live there, and I would come down to visit them on the weekends on the train. It starts out as a subway, and you work your way all the way up to uh, Camp Casey in Uh My claim to fame, though, is that uh, – so there's Area 1, right? Camp Casey is where I was assigned. The book uh, that I started reading, I didn't get very far, of MASH that the movie and the TV show was uh, based upon, I was very interested to note that M.A.S.H., the book, is set in Weejeongbu there, which is two train stops uh, further south from the DMZ. So that's my claim to fame. Of course, it was a much safer time to uh, be in South Korea uh, than when *Mash* was going on, but it was a great, uh, a great assignment. So just to tell you a brief um, account of a soldier who, after I, built these slides, I realized he was probably 23. His uh, confidentiality is protected by a, more than a decade's worth of hazy recollections, but the uh, principles are are uh, accurate and pertinent for sure. But uh, young soldier was uh, sent to our clinic to be evaluated for an administrative separation under this chapter 14, the, the misconduct separation, uh, because he was disrespectful to his uh, leadership, and he'd had multiple uh, failures to report those FDR violations, sleeping through formation. Well, as uh, and he was fast tracking and moving right along as to be such a young sergeant, but uh, clearly it was a problem for good order and discipline. The command had a valid complaint. This young sergeant needs to be setting a good example. He can't be sleeping through formation, right? Everybody's there up early in the morning. This is a big problem. Well, we get a chance to. Uh, Talk to him, figure out what's going on. You're staying up too late, playing video games, which is a very popular uh, undertaking. No, no, he's reluctant to talk about. He's having severe combat trauma nightmares. It is miserable to go to sleep. He's going to avoid going to sleep for as long as possible and eventually would just kind of collapse every few days in a heap and sleep through and get in trouble, right? Well, the first sergeant is out to get me and I've had enough of this place anyway. Uh, luckily though, the, the process uh, for, an, uh, for a chapter separation one of these administrative separations is to be uh, it requires a medical review and also a mental health review. And so that's a key aspect that if someone's been separated without the, from the Army, without a chance to have been evaluated by a mental health professional, that's a key uh, aspect of the process that it was supposed to be followed. Uh, anyway, I've made a very unpopular uh, decision and that's why it was so memorable as a young captain uh, indicating to a peer at the time the company commander would have also been a captain uh, that we, I needed to, them to pause this administrative uh, uh, separation action so that this soldier could have a chance to be, receive any kind of treatment. And so we put a two-month pause on the I did not clear him for the separation uh, and uh, to give the soldier an opportunity to participate in treatment unfortunately the um, the rest of that uh, story ended up uh, being that uh, the uh, i wish i wish we had a happy ending to this one uh, they ended up separating the soldier anyway because uh, he didn't uh, continue to participate in treatment when we had him back in for the re-evaluation when they were going the the time limit that i had established had expired and they were uh, they were kicking him out again and he was ready to get out he uh, he had enough of this anyway. But I really wonder, these many years later, if that was something that he immediately regretted or only later down the road as he got home as a young, uh, healthy fella who uh, now has been administratively separated from misconduct from the military and has uh, maybe uh, realized that he didn't have any employment plans like that. has stuck in my mind for many years about how important the work that that you uh, are doing to help individuals in such a wide variety of situations uh, to uh, reestablish their eligibility for services. Thank you for your help with those projects. Very briefly, I see I've got four minutes left. We're gonna uh, pop pop through some strategies for engagement uh, with these uh, uh, sometimes challenging uh, patient uh, or clients uh, to work with, Uh, but the, the most mileage I've gotten is just acknowledging that stigma, right, that it is, uh, it is tough to ask for help, and it's not surprising that so many service members were reluctant to do so. And just as a quick example, uh, fortunately they've improved the um, security clearance uh, renewal process, but uh, it can be a real, just a career ender if you lose your security clearance for many uh, uh, soldiers. But uh, right, in the, right in the questions that you have to self-disclose and risk uh, having found out uh, for you by the investigators if you don't disclose, used to be a question about have you ever uh, required mental health treatment. And luckily they've improved that uh, to uh, narrow it down that have you ever um, required mental health treatment for substance abuse or domestic violence. But some of the career soldiers remembered, you know, it's you know years in between each renewal. They will specifically remember being asked about before the change, and there there's no way they're going to risk their security clearance being jeopardized because it's not clear when you have to do those self-disclosures. What does that mean? What are the consequences for my career if I admit on this official equip uh, form that my security clearance is going to be jeopardized if I admit to needing mental health treatment? So there were some just you know palpable institutional pressures discouraging people from utilizing services. Luckily, throughout the course of my time as an Army psychiatrist, that was addressed in a number of important ways. And that was a key uh, improvement there to clarify that uh, domestic violence is something obviously that can't be tolerated and must be addressed. Uh, but if you're getting mental health treatment for, for combat trauma uh, nightmares, uh, we certainly don't want to discourage that by giving the impression that we're jeopardizing your um, security clearance. And then just to commiserate over this process, right, that idea of, well, why don't you have any symptoms in you know, why, why don't you have any documented uh, encounters in your entire Army medical record? Why did this only come up after at the VA, right? So those kind of things. And they just, you know, accusing me of being a liar, right? That's the, that's the direct message that uh, leaves people with. What can we do to prompt clients about the uh, topic as you're trying to assess a trauma or uh, just to get a sense of, of what their military experience was like uh, it can be uh, a, a useful tactic to just talk about easier subjects first, right? Where'd you do your basic training? Where was your AIT for army service members? That's their um, uh, advanced individual training for uh, or specializing in their MOS, their uh, military uh, area of uh, specialization. Uh, What is your, uh, what was your pre-deployment training like? A lot of uh, units go to NTC in California, so Fort Irwin, just to kind of get them talking about things that they remember, if this was a long time ago. And then here, oh, I'm running out of time. uh, We're going to go fast through my last few slides. What about your redeployment survey? So lots of surveys. There's been plenty of opportunities for soldiers to talk about their trauma experiences. Uh, so before uh, just periodically every soldier had to do this pdha is the pre-deployment health assessment and then every time you returned from a deployment there was a pdhra the reassessment post-deployment well we'll go through that real quick so the pdha is pretty vague and they're obviously angling for ptsd symptoms have you ever uh, had an experience so bad that lately you're having nightmares or you're avoidant, or you're feeling numb right so those are easy to ignore and, uh, and nobody's going to risk uh, not being able to deploy by agreeing to those kind of questions. The post-deployment was very specific. That's a DD Form 2 2900, and that's where they get real specific. Were you ever going to be killed? Did you run into dead bodies, right? Was was there an opportunity for you to discharge your weapon? Sorry, my snipping tool, uh, the, the resolution was different than I expected. It came out very tiny when I <laughs> made this slide. But uh, did you engage in direct combat? And the big question, did you discharge your weapon, right? So that's something that... Uh, is a big discriminator, right? So I was issued a sidearm when I was an officer hanging out by the pool in the movie theater in Kuwait, and I never took the pistol out of the armory, right? Because it was such a such a different assignment. So even a deployment history doesn't guarantee that there was any any um, enemy fire. So what do we make of these discrepancies, right? Oh, I don't, I can't risk not deploying with my unit. I'm gonna not, I'm gonna suppress this information, right, to ensure that they can deploy. Or, here's the kicker, those post-deployment reassessments, you line up in this giant line and everybody's got to get their their lungs listed too, and everybody's got to fill out this survey. You are eager to get home. And believe me, after four and a half months in Kuwait of the swimming pool and uh, movie theater, I was very eager to not get held up at the out-processing station. And it just became very clear to me, I'm going to suppress any symptoms I've got so I can get through this station and get home to my family. So lots of good reasons why people wouldn't be talking about these things. And then uh, one more item on this slide. I'm almost done, sorry. Uh, What uh, resources were available at the time? That can kind of set the time frame, right? So the Army got really good about uh, sexual harassment and then just providing victim advocates. But for a long time, there was no sharp uh, um, uh, representative for your unit. And then by the time that uh, I left, every unit had to have their own sharp representative. And so that's something just to kind of ask about when they go, very quickly, my last uh, topic is malingering, so risks and benefits of testing. Uh, VA loves to do uh, psych testing, and it's a great discriminator, but not very specific. So there's all kinds of, you know, nobody's gonna argue the validity of these tests. So the MMPI, they're not quite up to version three yet, they, but they're gonna restructure it, so it's MMPI-2, RF, and a SIRS, or a SIMS, or the MFAST, they were really struggling for different kinds of names, the Forensic Assessment of Symptoms Test, uh, that miller put out there's no question these are valid tests what uh, do we do if uh, oh yeah here's a quote right it is highly stable classifications across repeat administrations richard Rodgers, he's the he's the big name in uh, in uh, psych testing and he did the sirs is his project but uh, forensic inpatients, So they're really good at identifying valid psychosis, no question, right? What do they mean about malingering? Well, do any of those tests have anything to do with combat trauma or being assaulted by your, someone in your unit while you're deployed? No, nothing at all. These are mostly for psychosis. MMPI uh, is just a personality test, but it has lots of great built-in indicators of are these answers consistent? And so if you run into somebody that has a positive malingering result, None of these tests address the specific situation that your client has gone through, right? These are just how consistent are their answers for all these kind of tests. And the thing I keep pointing out is this, they're, maybe they're communicating genuine distress. The questions are so weird that anyone taking these questions, you know, what does this have to do with uh, being fired at by terrorists, right? Well, maybe this is a chance where I can communicate how, how terrible it was, right? And so when there's a forced choice scenario, I'm gonna pick the thing that makes it clear that I was in danger, I felt scared, right? And so that could be a, a reason why somebody might uh, set off some of these validity indicators for, for possible and then be interpreted as malingering. Sorry, I've gone way over my time. Drop us a line out at the uh, lawn psychiatry service at Bowdoin Square if everything ever gets back to normal. And uh, thank you for your kind attention. I'll stop sharing. Oh, look at that. And the lights went out again just in time. Thanks.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harvickson. Um, I'll just turn it over to you, Dr. Dixon, and you'll have the next half hour.
2: Oh, great. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Dana, uh, for inviting me to talk. And thank you, Dr. Harvidsson, for your uh, very nice presentation. I'm going to share my screen now. Uh, there we go. Okay, I'm gonna quickly talk about um, these areas of focus. A quick trauma overview, uh, a little bit about working with trauma clients and then what this might mean for lawyers and how to work with uh, psychologists, therapists, or mental health professionals when you're doing uh, this kind of work. So very briefly, what is a trauma? Um, Succinctly, A trauma is simply and subjectively an experience or a group of experiences that overwhelms whatever our current coping capacity is at the time. So it's a very subjective experience and it overwhelms whatever capabilities we have of managing um, an experience in in our current lifetime. How do we get through it? We just get through it in whatever way we can. Um, What this means is that these traumatic experiences are not, unfortunately, integrated into our narrative past, but they remain as part of our bodily experience, and so they are part of our present life more so than our past life. One of the most traumatic things about trauma is that we're alone with that experience, and the aloneness is problematic. And I don't necessarily mean that we were the only one involved in it, but that we weren't uh, gaining um, from other people comfort, soothing, um, and an ability or an, an opportunity to make sense of the experience that we just went through. It's important to know that trauma can be experienced in many different ways, not just as something that happens to you, but that something you do to others can be traumatic and witnessing something happening or the grotesque to others can be very traumatic. So what happens during a trauma? So briefly, what happens is the aspects of the experience get shattered to the wind. And so the verbal piece of the experience, the emotional piece, the bodily sensations, and our actions get scattered to the wind, and we don't have a way of organizing that experience when we think about it. That splitting or that disintegration occurs in the rain, and very, very briefly, our brain consists of three areas that do three different jobs. The first, job of, the first part of our brain does the job of keeping us alive. So the basic housekeeping functions of making sure that we can uh, stay awake, go to sleep, that we can move, we can stay alive. Uh, the second job, the second part of the brain, has the job of dealing with emotions, so our basic feelings, and how we relate to others, and how we perceive the environment, so how we take in what the environment is where we're in currently. And then finally, the frontal cortex, which is the thing that makes humans humans, so um, verbal, reason, uh, verb, u- the use of words, higher thinking, abstract reasoning, executive functioning like organizing, sequencing, planning, and more complicated feelings like compassion and empathy. When we are uh, experiencing a trauma, we go into what's called survival mode. And what that means is the brain and the body are operating in the most efficient way to ensure that survival is happening in the face of a threat. And if we bop down to the bottom, the The first thing that's going to be happening is that the parts of our brain that make us a human being, we don't need those during survival. So we don't need words, we don't need abstract reasoning, judgment, we don't need to know how to organize or sequence, that all gets shut down. If we hop back up, the limbic system or the part that handles our emotions and our attachment to others gets altered. And so the first thing that, or one of the things that happens is the the area of the limbic system that writes the narrative into our memory gets altered. So we have not necessarily no memory or an inaccurate memory, but it's not an integrated memory. The second thing that happens, one of the most um, talked about pieces of trauma is that our Amygdala has been modified. And so this is called um, amygdala hijacking. So the part of our brain that assesses our environment for something that is considered a threat is now uh, altered. And so what happens is that we now sense threat when there really is not threat. And so we sense threat and have an experience of fear. So the real feeling of fear but without an actual experience of something that's dangerous. And one way that I like to describe this is using the learning theory model, which I'll briefly go over called classical conditioning. And all this means in the trauma field is that something that used, that something that used to not be scary for us is now um, associated with being threatening, and that is associated with fear, the fear of being scared. So a former, formerly neutral stimuli that really had no reaction inside of us is now associated with being threatening, leading to extreme reactions. And one of the ways that I like to describe this is if you were uh, a veteran in Vietnam, in Vietnam, they used to there would be a monsoon season where there would be a lot of heat and there would be a lot of rain that would come down. And if you were in Vietnam during monsoon and you were getting fired upon, you would be experiencing the threat of being fired upon and the fear that went with this while also feeling the warm heat and the rain. And so what would happen is you would come back home after discharge, you would be say living in the Boston area in July and it would be a hot day and it would rain very heavily and suddenly you would be having a panic attack and you wouldn't know why, because it's just raining in July. But what's happened is your body has been classically conditioned to associate warm rain with threat, with fear. And so a formerly neutral stimuli is now leading to an extreme reaction. When your amygdala gets. Um, activated and senses that there's threat what it does is it activates our nervous system the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and we've all heard about the fight-or-flight response it's more accurately described as fight flight or freeze and so that part of our nervous system that gets us ready to engage in actions that will help us um, address something threatening and or actions that will then help us to shut down, rest and digest, or shut down when the threat is over. When we're in amygdala hijacking, both of these are out of control, leading to regular states of dysregulation. And like I already said, the frontal cortex is offline, so there's really no ability to more accurately assess the environment and figure out what's really going on. You're just feeling scared. And so, post trauma, when we're triggered, any number of things can occur. So, we've talked about the wordless fear that you'll experience in an extreme uh, amount. You will then possibly have behaviors that make no sense and that are extreme. You will have feelings that are so intense that you need to just make them go away in whatever way you know how to do that. Sometimes that's with alcohol, sometimes that's with drugs, sometimes that's with cutting yourself or harming yourself. Sometimes that's through eating disorders, binging and purging. Sometimes since the verbal piece of the, narr- of the experience has been cut off from all the other aspects, sometimes you'll be able to tell the story in that, uh, an incredibly traumatic story, but without any emotions whatsoever. Sometimes you can't remember some of the story. Always there's gonna be a sense that connecting intimately with others is going to feel unsafe and sometimes unbearable so following the trauma we've got trauma responses that are going to oscillate between severe re-experiencing so too much feelings feeling too much oscillating with shutting down and just feeling too little so in uh Generally, those re-experiencing symptoms come out in very specific ways such as nightmares that we've talked about, thoughts about the trauma that come in when we don't want them to come in, flashbacks, which means that it feels like the trauma is happening again, extreme feelings of distress or extreme sensations of distress like panic attacks, oscillating with extreme experiences of avoiding or numbing, so in an inability to recall the trauma,
0: association. There's also going to be, as we talked about,
2: uh, disconnection from others. So an inability to relate well uh, in others and an, an inability to actually see or be seen by others in ways that feel um, helpful. Okay, so post-trauma, there's really two things that we want to be noticing. The first that I talked about are the symptoms. So your trauma responses that are happening in the present. These are the things that aren't working well in your life now. And when we notice them or you talk about them, those are often conceptualized as a psychological diagnosis. And Dr. Hartvickson talked about some of them, PTSD, major depression, uh, anxiety, insomnia, substance abuse, panic disorder, intermittent explosive disorder. There's lots of ways that we can experience symptoms of uh, post-trauma. And then there's also the traumatic experience, which is the trauma story or what happened in the past. And interestingly, it might seem like it would be easier to ask someone about what happened in the past since it happened in the past. But what we're gonna see is that that is often, because it's not an integrated experience, it can be incredibly triggering and incredibly uh, overwhelming for someone to talk about an experience in the past that that still gets activated in the present. It can be much easier to ask someone about the stuff that isn't working well in their life now, so their symptoms. Trauma symptoms, like I said, can include a variety of things and they'll impact almost all areas of your life. So problems with thinking, problems with, Feelings, so feeling too much, feeling too little, feeling the wrong kind of feelings, feeling shame, hopelessness, um, sometimes to the point of wanting to hurt yourself. Um, Any kind of behavioral problems, sleep problems, rage outbursts, substance abuse, problems with authority is not unusual. Um, It is also not unusual to have a range of medical issues, Um, most of my clients have um, medical issues ranging from gastrointestinal problems migraine headaches chronic pain um, uh, lots of kinds of things and it's also not unusual to have relationship issues so divorce uh, social isolation or no friends at all difficulty with intimacy difficulty with authority figures okay what about the trauma narrative so the trauma happened in the past but when we talk about it, it feels as if it's still occurring in the present. And when the trauma hasn't been integrated, retelling the narrative can cause re-experiencing symptoms. So if we were to ask the Vietnam veteran about that experience in Vietnam, they will feel the experience, the feelings, the fear, the shame in all of its intensity as if it were happening again. This might then be followed by avoidance symptoms. So typical avoidance symptoms that um, a veteran might have when they get triggered. So they might uh, tell their story and then feel so badly about that and don't have an ability to kind of metabolize that feeling that they will then do whatever it is that they need to do to make those feelings go away like substance abuse. So how do we work therapeutically with clients who have experienced trauma? So these are principles, not theories, but one of the most important principles about working with someone who has experienced trauma is that you wanna stay in the present as much as possible. You want them to know and to feel as much as possible that they're in the present and that in the present, nothing bad is happening now. Secondly, slower is faster. So rather than begin and have them jump right into it, we take as long as it takes before they get to the most difficult part of their trauma. Sometimes that means it can take years of developing coping skills so that they can do uh, the things that we sometimes take for granted. And so we call that mindfulness. So being able to notice what you're doing and what you're feeling in the moment. Thirdly, the therapeutic relationship is an integral part of treatment, which means that attending to what happens between myself and my client is almost, if not, more important than anything that I could say. And so helping a client feel safe in the room with me is the most important piece. Fourth, since trauma is that something was overpowering to the client, it's essential that they feel a sense of power and agency throughout the whole process of working with me. And lastly, the goal is not to necessarily to process every traumatic memory, but to get a client to the point where they recognize that it happened, it happened to them, and that it's over. Okay, so what does this mean in terms of some of my assumptions so initially what's important to know is that i can't assume that a client feels safe with me and most importantly with me in an enclosed room and additionally or ever so that i have to appreciate that it takes a lot for a client to walk in the room and sit down with me and talk about them Trauma memory work, meaning talking about what happened to them, can only occur when something called dual attention is happening. Dual attention means paying attention to two things at once, which means that, and this might sound simple, but it's actually a lot harder than it sounds sometimes, that I am sitting in the present and I know that I am safe and that I'm in the present. So I've got one foot in the present while I dip one foot into the past and talk about what happened back then. So I'm attending to the present while I talk about the past. When I can do that, I can then tell my story without getting overwhelmed by my story. So I can tell it with feelings. So with the feelings that were happening, but the feelings don't blow me out of the water. And that if I can't do that, then I'm experiencing trauma symptoms. So trauma symptoms are really an indication that I'm not able to stay in the present and feel that I'm safe in the present when i am then experiencing what happened in the past. So a little bit more about what is dual attention. So um, I was thinking about how to to talk about this. Um, We're all kind of in the middle of experiencing something that is pretty distressing right now, we're all stuck um, in our houses alone. And so what I want you to do just for a second is think about the last time that you met in person with um, some, a good friend of yours, someone that you liked to be meeting with, someone that you liked the company of. So think about the narrative of that story, just a little bit of that experience. When you think about it, notice the story that go, comes into your mind Notice when you think about that story, what feelings you're having when you do that. Notice what your body feels like, what internal sensations you're having when you think about what that meeting was like. Notice um, any actions that your body is doing when you remember that, you know. Notice in particular, are you smiling when you think about that? And when we can kind of put our head around that, we can really understand that our experiences when they're not traumatic, we're integrating all the different aspects. We're integrating the verbal narrative, we're integrating the feelings, we're integrating the sensations, we're integrating the actions. And without even knowing it, without even thinking about it, when we tell our story, we incorporate all of those aspects. And so that is having dual attention and talking about a non-traumatic experience it's really important to know that what we do and when we do that so that we can notice when our client is not doing that or when our veteran is not doing that and so a nice way that I sometimes show my clients is I show them this um, picture of what's called the window of tolerance and the window of tolerance is quite simply, it is just in between these two horizontal lines, in between those two horizontal lines is our range of experiences where we can feel and deal so that we can talk about something and feel it without getting blown out of the water. So inside that bar is my or our um, uh, range of experiences, my window of tolerance, where I can have an experience, talk about that experience, and know that it is something that I can experience dual attention. If I'm feeling too much and my my sympathetic nervous system is getting activated, I'm into above the window of tolerance into what's called hyperarousal activation, which is exceeding my capacity to integrate. I'm feeling too much. And if I'm going down below the window and I need to just shut it down, that's called hypoarousal that's insufficient activation to integrate. What that really means is I'm not feeling and dealing. So it's helpful to know that I always wanna try to keep my clients inside that window of tolerance. The second thing that's important is is a concept called dyadic regulation. So dyadic, two-person regulation. And the way that I often describe this is, if we think about, if we think about what we do when we hear a baby crying. So imagine right now that you're presented with an infant that is in distress and you're crying. What do you do? And usually when I teach a class, people start kind of putting their arms like this and they start soothing and rocking back and forth. And when I ask people why they do that, it's like we just kind of inherently know that when a baby is in distress, we need to be the ones to help calm them down because a baby's nervous system is not developed enough to be able to get overwhelmed and then calm themselves down by themselves. So they need an external, an external calm nervous system to dyadically regulate them so that they can come into their window of tolerance. That's a fancy way of saying we use our body to help somebody else's dysregulated body calm down. As we grow up, we learn to do that on our own for most instances. However, even as an adult, we still need dyadic regulation from other people. And one way to think about this um, that I was thinking of is we're all now spending a lot of time alone in our houses you know, with some people in our houses, but also needing to make connections with people outside of our house. And so when we get on our Zoom calls and we say, people ask us, how are you doing, how's your day been? It's not unusual for us to say, you know, this is really a lot and I'm upset and I'm having a bad day. And if we think about what it is that we expect when we say that, right? We're gonna say, I'm not having a good day. And then we look into our Zoom camera And we are hoping to see somebody looking back at us who can smile and say, I know this is really hard, right? That's an example of dyadic regulation. It doesn't need to involve touch. It doesn't need to involve a hug or cooing or what we do with little infants, but it is somebody who is calm in that moment, recognizing the distress in us and telling us it's gonna be okay, right? We need that and we look for that and we honor that in the relationships that
0: we have. So dyadic regulation A credible trauma narrative one of the most important things to
2: think about is considering how much you really need and how much you can get from other sources other than interviewing other the client, given that interviewing is, can be dysregulating. You're going to ask the client, tell me the story of your military service from start to finish. And as Dr. Harbison indicated, you know, you're going to ask about things that are not as traumatic kind of lead them into the story and lead them out of the story you're looking for information about who what when where and how i'm realizing i have a little bit of time left so i'm gonna talk a little bit faster than i'd like to however it's important to know that this is not a criminal case it's not confrontational so you don't need the nitty-gritty you just need to know that something happened and know enough that you can document what it happened One of the most important things to know about doing the trauma narrative is that it is most important to do it in person and to try not to do it over the phone or not to do it over a video conferencing. It's okay if the narrative is not remembered in its entirety. That doesn't mean that they're lying. That can mean that it is a disintegrated experience. I also try not to assume what might be traumatic during their service. Um, And I was gonna tell some stories about this, but I'm just gonna leave it as, even if someone goes into combat, it's not necessarily that they were fired on, that is the traumatic part. It could be that they witnessed their best friend die in front of them, and that is, um, the grief around that is more upsetting than anything that had to do with what they had to go through. Okay, safety, it's important and essential to try to create a sense of safety and attending to things that you may never have to attend to with other clients. So for example, if I assume that a client doesn't feel safe coming into the room sitting with me, then I might ask them where would they like to sit Would they like to move around the chairs? Do they wanna sit closest to the door? Do they wanna sit facing the door? Do they want the door open? Do they need somebody else in the room with me? So things that I might never think about with any other client, I'm gonna try to pay attention to with these clients. I'm gonna make sure that I monitor my nervous system and I'm gonna notice the impact that it's having on my client because it's going to have an impact. What do I need to do to settle myself internally and externally so that i can at most be a dyadic regulator and at least not be a dysregulator what does the client do when they get dysregulated and how do they generally cope with distress right now in their life okay paying attention to the relationship uh, particularly the power dynamics and appreciating that I'm an authority figure even if I don't feel like I'm an authority figure to my client. And so what might that evoke in them? Um, How can I work on increasing their sense of agency and power when they're sitting with me? And then if when I'm delving into their trauma story, I'm always gonna start with grounding in the present. And so acknowledging the task ahead, inviting them to take breaks when and where and however they need to providing as much psychoeducation about trauma and trauma responses as possible. Um, Often, I'll I'll talk about the fact that I need them to stay as grounded as possible in the present because it doesn't help you or me if you're getting overwhelmed, so my job is to help you feel safe in the present. From there, dip a toe into the past, knowing that this could be one of the most difficult things that they have ever shared with anyone. And so not to ask about those details in the first meeting, but to allow the client over time to feel safe with you, figuring out a plan to introduce it, how to make sure that when we introduce it, that the client comes back for the second session. That is not always a guarantee. Um, uh, And if possible, if I start my trauma nerve, I wanna get through to the end in one session because I don't wanna stop midway and leave the, the, tri- the client with um, in distress, knowing that they have to come back and kind of start in distress. It's also helpful to know that for most clients who had this trauma happen in the past, they generally have what's called a thumbnail version that they can talk about. So when we talked about how it was disintegrated, they've got that experience here, that the verbal narrative without the emotions that they can kind of tell you about as an initial uh, expression of it. Okay, then we're gonna talk about the trauma narrative, slowly focusing on the most difficult pieces, knowing that some of it might be true triggering and might not be necessary. Knowing that you might be the first person to ask in this level of detail and and that they are sharing this possibly for the first time with someone with all of the fear and the shame that it evokes. As we talked about, you might not need the entire story and that it is okay to get a little bit of it and then leave it to the medical expert um, to kind of finish finish gaining more details, gathering more details. Monitoring for symptoms of going out of the window of tolerance, so feeling too much or feeling too little. One of my rules of thumb is if I'm having trouble following their story and, and they're kind of bouncing all over the place, that's generally a good indicator to me that the client is dysregulated. Okay, very quickly to go over grounding techniques. If we think about how am I helping a client feel safe in the present, and that the goal is to help someone know that they are safe in their body in 2020, the way that we wanna think about doing this is we don't wanna think someone's way into it. We want them to use their senses, sight, sound, touch, smell. That is how you help someone get in touch with their body and know what is actually coming in from the environment. And so one of the things to maybe have in your environment is stress balls that they can feel and that they can squeeze and really know that this is what their body is feeling. Um, It is not unusual for me to have a jar of lavender because this can be a very pleasant smell for most people, not all people. Um, And I've had a number of grizzled veterans take up my jar of lavender and smell it and allow themselves to feel calm. Um, uh, Let's see, Um, look around my office and take in what you can see. I know, Dana, I'm I'm noticing that you popped up and then I need to hurry up. Um, And then monitor for safety afterwards. Um, And in general, um, have a continue. well, figure out how it is that they can let you know that they are safe afterwards. Um, Dana, what should I do? Should I end right now since I'm way late? No, take a few minutes. Okay. Very, very quickly, working with mental health professionals. I don't need to go over this slide. This, this defines PTSD and kind of the way that we conceptualize it. PTSD is the only mental health condition that doesn't exist inherently inside you. If a trauma didn't happen, then PTSD doesn't, uh, isn't, um, isn't going to be uh, there. So, the assessment is looking for the trauma and then PTSD symptoms after the trauma, and specifically, no PTSD before the trauma. Uh, so, generally, what I use are um, assessment instruments like the CAPS 5, um, done at multiple periods. Um, I also generally assess for major depression and then other assessments like dissociation if they're needed. I'm gonna be reviewing lots and lots of records. Most importantly, their in-service records, their medical records. Um, We don't have to go over this last part. Uh, And then when when looking at referrals that are most helpful, some of the practical things as Dana had talked about, um, really understanding what is the question that you want me to answer so what's the legal standard and what are the referral questions that my report needs to answer that you can then use in your legal brief Um, it's always helpful to have clients who are accessible um, and that might sound simple but sometimes it's really hard to get in touch with veterans Um, it's helpful that they are available and interested in contacting and getting in touch with me it's really helpful to have a timeline um, it's really helpful to have as much documentation as possible. You might think that you're giving me too many records, but you know, 4,000 plus pages of records is actually more helpful than 200 pages of records. Um, and then conceptually, uh, we don't really have to go over this piece, but conceptually, what I have found is that uh, MST, or military sexual traumas, have generally been unambiguous. Um, and oftentimes PTSD, especially during war, is fairly straightforward to diagnose. Um, I know that Dr. Harbinson had said that sometimes someone will suddenly um, want to get diagnosed with PTSD. What I have often found though, is that their military record is scattered with incidents, instances of where they have had Uh, times that they've gone to the medical field and, and had symptoms that have gotten misdiagnosed. And so they've gotten missed as PTSD symptoms and gotten diagnosed as something else. Okay, thank you. Back to you.
0: i unmute myself first. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dixon and Dr. Hartwigson. I know we have a question, but I just wanted to make a few notes before we transition to answering your questions. Um, one thing that actually may address one of the questions we have is, what is obvious from hearing Dr. Hartwigson and Dr. Dixon is that working with veterans who have experienced trauma often can um, brings a lot of care and can require some, Expertise and we as lawyers can become trained to do it to some extent as we need to as lawyers, but are we're never the professionals in this area. Um, And so one Thing is we need to be aware of what mental health experts do and the ways that we need to be interviewing our clients But also to figure out what is the way that I can structure my relationship with my clients such that they can get the help they need They can be in treatment if that's what they need And can we get information about someone's trauma um, from other sources than from the veteran if asking them about it is going to cause some triggering experiences? So can we read someone's medical records and find out what the trauma is because they've disclosed it to someone else? Could they um, have told, um, could they tell an expert like Dr. Dixon or Dr. Hartfixon? in the capacity as a medical expert for a case, and we can then pull the details from that. So there are ways to gather the information that you need um, without ever having to have a a really deep discussion about the trauma with your your client. Um, I've also included um, some resources in all of the program materials that talk a little bit more about translating um, sort of some trauma-informed lawyering practices um, and the ways that we as lawyers should be doing some of the same things Dr. Dixon suggested, like thinking about how the room is set up and making sure that someone feels comfortable and um, checking in with them after we've um, talked about, had a difficult experience to make sure that they're doing okay or knowing what their plan is for the rest of the day. Um, and I also then just want to highlight that um, while this program is focused on mental health and many of our clients have experienced mental health conditions, I just want to make sure that um, this is not taken as an indication that veterans as a whole um, have significant mental health issues. Um, in fact, most veterans do not um, and lead very, very successful lives. Um, but we focus on serving veterans with mental health conditions, especially because there's such um, a strong correlation between having an inter service mental health condition and getting a less than honorable discharge. So that's why we take the time to talk about this. Um, And, but for the most part, um, while our clients may have had deeply traumatic experiences and been having significant mental health conditions, um, in many ways, our relationship as lawyers can move forward like the relationships we would have with clients who don't have mental health conditions. Um, And these are people you can have deep and meaningful relationships with where you talk about plenty of things other than the trauma. Um, And we should always be sure not to think of our clients as Um, broken in any way, but instead try to see the way that we are advocating for them in a trauma-informed way as almost a therapeutic process where they have someone to advocate for them, for someone who believes in them, um, and is going to help them tell their story to this decision-maker. So with that, I'd like to ask um, Dr. Dixon, but also welcome Dr. And if you have any thoughts about um, uh, Richard Goldman's question. since we're not trained, since we lawyers are not trained in psychology, um, do you have perspectives on how deeply we should dig into the trauma versus um, you know, leaving it to the experts?
2: Sure, I can, I can address that. Um, so when you're trying to distinguish between digging into the trauma versus gathering the facts, I think one of the things that I want to emphasize um, is that sometimes gathering the facts is digging into the trauma. And so really just acknowledging that even though sometimes it might seem to you like you're just saying, tell me what happened, tell me what happened can be traumatizing, right? And so one of the ways to think about um, how to approach that is to figure out, like Dana said, can you get as much of the information from somewhere else as possible and then how little can I get from the veteran and how can I monitor if I feel like that veteran is, is getting um, uh, in distress? And if they are in distress, just, okay, let's hold off and let's, let's leave it at that, bring you back down to kind of feeling grounded in your seat right now, and let's move on to something else. And that, that's, not a, that's not a bad thing at all. Um, so that's, that's really what I wanted to say around that.
1: I really like Dr. Dixon's approach there to just monitor the situation, be aware of the client's response, and to take a break uh, if it's getting too uh, intense. But it's a really important question and one that has to be uh, customized uh, to the individual. But it's great uh, to be aware of and just uh, just take it at the uh, at the individual's own pace, is my guidance.
0: And again, um, this goes a little bit to the question, but to remember that the standard of what you actually have to prove to the board is only a preponderance of the evidence. They sort of have to believe that the trauma happened, that the mental health condition exists, that there was a nexus, but that doesn't mean, as Dr. Dixon helpfully said in her presentation, the same level that you would need to prosecute a criminal matter um, in terms of knowing all of the details. It um, can be enough to be able to understand the broad um, scope of just what happened, when happened, was anyone else there um, and find ways to be able to tell the story in a way that's believable, but it doesn't necessarily need the nitty gritty detail of a blue by blue account. Since we have no other questions and we are at our um, designated time limit, um, I wanted to ask quickly, um, Dr. Harfixson or Dr. Dixon, if there's any last thoughts that you wanted to add
1: Hey, thanks so much for your interest. It's such an important topic, and uh, keep uh, keep yourself healthy out there. Wash your hands, and don't touch your face.
2: Um, I'll Thank you. I'll do that. <laughs> um, I also want to thank you for uh, saying, Dana, um, your assessment. I'm a trauma therapist, and so I see lots of people with trauma. That in no way means that I think anybody is broken. I say that Uh, a lot to my clients, you are not broken, right? And so the goal here is to help you heal. It is not to make you feel more badly about yourself or to put you on any kind of um, level of comparison with what anyone else has gone through. So thank you for stating
0: that. Yeah, well, I've had uh, many similar conversations with my own clients where they really actually do find that the process of putting together a discharge upgrade application, while stressful in many ways, Um, because it involves a team of lawyers who who believe them and who are willing to tell their story actually can, in its own way, be sort of a therapeutic and healing process, no matter what the the actual substantive outcome of the application is. Obviously, we hope that we win, um, but in fact, the process itself, we hope, can be healing. So thank you, everyone, for coming here today. If you do have questions afterwards, of course, please reach out to me. And if you're looking to get in touch with Dr. Dixon or Dr. Herfixson with questions, um, I'm happy to put you in touch if that's all right with them. Um, And take care everyone. Um, As Dr. Herfixson said, wash your hands. So thank you.